Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. I'm John Moorhead. I am the host of the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast, and I am privileged today to have as my special guest, a colleague and a co-worker. We work together on a project, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, Daryl Katerine. And I'm going to read your bio from uh, that I found on various sources. So hopefully it's up to date. If not, you can correct me here. Uh, Daryl Katerine is a professor of religious studies at Lemoyne College. He is a historian of religions whose research focuses on the intersections of religion, culture, and politics in the U.S. and parts of Latin America. His areas of academic research include metaphysical occult religions in America and religion and popular culture. He is the author and co-editor of several books, including an ethnography titled Haunted Ground, Journals Through a Paranormal America, which we're going to talk about today, which is really cool. And the volume that uh, he and I co-edited together, The Paranormal and Popular Culture, a Postmodern Religious Landscape. And if folks are not listening but watching on YouTube, there's a little... uh, uh, not so unabashed share and promotion of the volume there. So, Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's really great to be here. Well, like you and I were uh, talking before we started recording, and this is the first face-to-face we've had. We've had a ton of email exchanges as we co-edited the book. Uh, we had one phone call before we actually started the volume, but this is our first face-to-face. So it's it's cool to tackle an important topic and to actually be able to see you as we have the conversation. So. Uh, I'm jazzed about it. Now, the background for our conversation is uh, recently the the U.S. government, the Pentagon, released uh, a report on UFOs, or I think they're trying to use a new uh, term now to to make it less um, fringy, if you will, Unidentified (laughs) Aerial Phenomenon, UAP. So uh, this this podcast here is a part of a mini-series that I'm doing in response to that. And uh, I, I like to begin my conversations with people to get a little personal background. How in the world as an academic, a scholar working in the area of religions come to develop a personal as well as academic interest in studying the paranormal? That is a great question. And there's (laughs) more than one way to answer it. Um, One of the ways I think that I got into this, I'll start with the academic part first, is you mentioned in the bio that a subset of my research interests focuses on Latino and Latin American religious phenomena. And once you get into that world, uh, the, the miraculous, let's just call it that, the miraculous is a really big part of that religious landscape. So I was looking for something kind of analogous to that in the United States setting to study as a researcher. And it was the, what we call the paranormal that had the same kind of vibe, you know, to what you get down in south of the border, say. Uh, On a more personal note, I guess I think that there's a heavy overlap between some of the paranormal stuff and what we might just call mysticism in in the field of religion. And I, 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 uh, I would never be so Uh, pretentious is to identify myself as a mystic, but I do contemplative practices and such. So 
so there's a kind of affinity there. And then the last thing I'll say is that when I was researching for my book um, that you mentioned, Haunted Ground, I went into Lilydale, which is a spiritualist community of mediums here in New York, uh, which is where I'm presently located. I went into that community as a pretty agnostic, kind of secular trained academic. And I just started having a few experiences there that, that didn't comfortably fit. Uh, that's kind of a polite way of saying that I kind of like got my mind blown there. Right. What, whatever was going on, it was not normal as far as I could tell. And so that really kind of shifted the way that I think about um, all of this material, including the UFO stuff. So. Now, now, how long has this been of interest to you? For me, um, I don't know what our, our relative ages are here. I'm a child. I grew up in the 1970s. Okay. And, and so um, back then yeah. in pop culture, you had documentaries and pseudo documentaries on UFOs and the paranormal. Uh, it was in television programs. Uh, it was in horror films and science fiction. Um, and the UFO phenomenon was all over the place. I remember, uh, in fact, just recently, last night, I rewatched uh, the, the story of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case from the 1960s. And that was made into a TV movie in 1975. And so I, I have always had an interest and I kind of set it aside uh, years later with some more conservative religious commitments. But then I kind of revisited and thought, why is that? Why is it some religious phenomena? That's OK. That's orthodox. And, and others aren't. And so I kind of picked it up again and have made it an area of not only personal passion, but also academic interest. So for me, it's been quite some time since the 1970s. Has it been a long-term interest for you? I would have to say, well, first of all, I think we're pretty much of the same generation. I grew up during the 70s right. and early 80s as well. Um, I, uh, I'd have to say that for me, it's a little bit more recent than that. Um, I tend to be very attracted to thinking about and studying things that are in my immediate area. So I think, for example, the, the interest in Latin American Latino stuff emerged from when I was in California as a graduate student and just looking around me. Now here right now, I'm in upstate New York and I've been here for about 15 years now. And as you know, John, and as many of your viewers or listeners might also know, uh, upstate New York was a hotbed, uh, not only of the paranormal, but all sorts of new religious movements in the 19th century. And even today, uh, I would consider New York, for reasons that I can't give you a rational explanation for, uh, it's kind of a hotbed. It's a kind of uh, what the Scots would call a thin place. For example, uh, many of my students and their parents and relatives, most of whom are coming from at least a cultural Catholic background, they're, uh, it's not uncommon for them to talk about visitations to mediums. Oh, my mother is, uh, you know, she has a psychic that she goes to. And I, I've never lived in a part of the United States before that um, has that kind of charge. So what I'm getting to is uh, it's my interest in the paranormal, I think, has a lot to do with where I'm living right now in New York. And since that, that's only been for about 15 years, my interest, I guess I, my interest started probably back in around 2000 and yeah, about 15 years ago, 2005, 2006, as I started kind of looking around and, and thinking, where am I? <laughs> so. 
Well, it's got to be a great place to, to live and do research. I mean, all, all kinds of things from, you know, the roots of Mormonism, the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, all kinds of things. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Let, let's uh, deal with the elephant in the room up front. Uh, <laughs> one, how are we defining the paranormal? So this is a two-part question. And secondly, as an academic, as you know, one of the reasons uh, we tried to, to put together this volume on the uh, postmodern paranormal is because we wanted to send a message to scholars that this was serious phenomenon worthy of their, their study. Um, why study it at all? What, what's the case to be made for that and how are we defining it? Great, great question. So I am going to riff off of our friend Jeffrey Kripal here, okay. <laughs> who, as you know, John, you know, he, studied, uh, he teaches down at Rice University and has kind of pioneered uh, the study of the paranormal within the purview of religious studies. And to just kind of paraphrase Jeffrey Kripal, I would, um, I would define the paranormal as um, it's really a set of experiences. You know, I mean, that's one thing to note. Uh, it's a set of experiences and people who study those experiences. And these experiences are betwixt and between uh, what we would probably call religious experience and um, the kind of phenomena that's of interest of, to scientists. So I would say paranormal phenomena are these sort of liminal or in-between phenomena that can't be easily reduced to either conventional religious or mainstream scientific um, worldviews. As a start, that's sort of how I would frame a lot of paranormal phenomena. And um, why should we be interested in it as people who are interested in American religion? Well, you know, right now, I think it is the fastest rising religious demographic in the United States is the spiritual but not religious, which itself is an in-between category, somewhere in between conventional religion and secular scientific worldview. And so there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between SBNR and a spiritual but not religious and paranormal, but, but those two things are heavily overlapping. And I think to better understand what's going on with the spiritual but not religious, we can, we can benefit by taking a close look at the paranormal. So do you think do you think within that definition, I, I really like that definition, you know, it's quoted in our book. Um, do you think within that definition or is really the foundation for why this tends to be so marginalized? On the one hand, it doesn't fit into neat scientific categories that can be tested or or a scientific, let, let me rephrase it, a naturalistic worldview. And it also runs counter many times to uh, religious orthodoxy. It, it does in certain segments of even, uh, even Christianity has its so-called unorthodox uh, mystical kinds of experiences. Do you think it, because it is in that middle space, it offends all parties equally and that's why it's marginalized? I like to say that the paranormal has very few friends. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and I had that experience. I, my uh, faculty members, I teach at a Jesuit college which is probably one of the few places where I could get so much support and get away with this. They've been politely tolerant, I guess. Uh, that said, I think, um, you know, when I was doing PR for Haunted Ground, my first book, I, I hired a, a, you know, an agent to connect me with various interviews and such. And I found myself unknowingly, I didn't realize one evening I was doing an interview with, um, 
I don't know if it was a conservative Christian uh, radio program or if it was just a radio program somewhere down in the Bible Belt in the South. But um, immediately I found myself kind of in a defensive position. You know, I was getting questions like, how could anybody who has any kind of background in, in rational studies, you know, be, be looking at this? And it was really suspect. And um, I would say, this is just a speculation, but I think it's true. I think if I were in a more secular public university, it would be more difficult to, to look at this. So, yeah. And I just want to throw in, it's really not part of your question, but it's related something about the sociology of knowledge. You know, it's been mm. interesting to me uh, to, to kind of watch as soon as there is a kind of social endorsement by the United States military that, okay, I'm talking now thinking about UFOs. Okay, now it's all right to think about this. Everyone gets on the bandwagon. And before that time, you know, everybody's kind of tiptoeing around. So I think there's something in there about, you know, the sociology of knowledge and to put it politely, herd mentality might be a blunter way of, of putting the case. So, yeah, it was it was interesting to see with the, uh, you know, there was speculation for weeks about this government report, what it was going to say or what it wasn't. Yeah. And it was interesting to see the immediate polarization yes. between those who were you know, debunking, even before the report came out, I saw this one guy saying, you know, well, this is probably this. And, and I thought, well, for me, I would hope that the United States government has er people with his areas of expertise who've already taken those steps and ruled that out. But you have the, the debunkers on the one hand, yes. and then you have the true, what I call the true believers on the other hand, who immediately jump to, it must be flying saucers or, or something like that. So there's this polarization that, that's out there. Personally, I'm not too interested in inhabiting either of those polls. I'm more interested in what does the continued popularity of the paranormal tell us about the human desire for transcendence and spirituality and meaning making and those kinds of things. Does that resonate at all with, with your, you and your research? Yes, it does. I, I, uh, to speak to that, I'll speak to that in, you know, uh, straightforwardly, and then I'll say a little bit about how I kind of think about it. But yes, the, the search for transcendence. And, you know, I think that the, the real value of the paranormal, um, and this is really a theological statement right now, you know, we live, the dominant society is secular, it's naturalistic, to use your word, I think that's a great word. And, you know, I think that, uh, that, I mean, that's a huge barrier to anybody trying to cultivate any kind of faith or any kind of orientation to the transcendent. And I think the paranormal really acts best as a kind of solvent. Uh, I think that it's very tricksterish uh, and it does a really good job in kind of pulling the rug out from underneath the feet of uh, sort of died in the wool secularists, you know? And, you know, even uh, Michael Shermer, it's funny you should mention the polarization because just this morning I was reading uh, an older, maybe it was back in May of this year, Michael Shermer speaking out on the UFOs and this has something to do with, you know, optical stuff with the cameras. But, you know, there's a really interesting story about Michael Shermer in Jeffrey Kripal's book, The Flip. And, 
just to kind of paraphrase, you know, Michael Shermer, the arch secular skeptic, um, I think it was it was when he was getting married and in preparation for his wedding, he was in a room somewhere with his fiance and the radio suddenly turned itself on to uh, Shermer's fiance's father's favorite song. Of course, the father had been dead for some time. And even Shermer, you know, <laughs> had to say something like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know what happened. And even if it was an electrical phenomenon, the fact that there was a meaningful coincidence with that particular song is something that I'm not going to try to, you know, explain away. So I think, again, just to kind of wrap up there, um, yeah, the paranormal is, it's a trickster and it pokes holes in this barrier of secular naturalistic materialism so yeah, yeah. Well, one of the uh surveys that i try and keep on top of as they release new uh new versions of it the chapman university survey of american fears hmm. which is fascinating because they include a segment on the paranormal um and uh, the most <laughs> recent one that i saw was from uh, that i downloaded was from 2018 and it listed uh, different percentages of paranormal phenomena and people who in America who adhere to this. 58%, the highest number, are both people believe that places are haunted by spirits. 57% advanced civilizations of the past, like Atlantis and that kind of thing. 41% uh, believe aliens have visited Earth in the ancient past. 35% uh, aliens have come to Earth in modern times. And so goes to goes on to cryptoids and, and various things like that. So this is a and as I kept kept track of this uh, survey, there the numbers either remain steady or they they continue to rise. Now you mentioned Michael Shermer in your last comment. Uh, he did an article. I don't remember where it was, but it was fascinating. As a skeptic, he opined that perhaps the the possibility uh, of alien civilizations or the belief in in advanced alien civilizations can function for skeptics like god does for religious people so it would seem that even a, a noted skeptic like shermer recognizes that human beings have a desire for transcendence how do you see people looking for signals of transcendence to borrow a term from peter berger uh, mm -hmm. in the paranormal phenomenon Wow, that's really interesting about about Shermer's. Uh, it's really sort of astro theology, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, yeah. Like you were talking about earlier. Um, well, I, I think there are a bunch of ways. To me, the one that jumps right out um, is uh, research on near death experiences. Mm. You know, uh, to, to just kind of put it bluntly, you know, I think um, a lot of secular skeptical people in relation to religion are kind of asking the basic question of, is there a there there, you know? Um, let's, let's, let's just bracket the idea of God for the minute, for the moment and just say, is it true that we have a soul? I mean, no soul, no religion, as far as I can tell. So something like a near-death experience is sort of in the bullseye of this, what I think, what I would think, uh, not all, obviously, but many religious people would be very interested in this. This uh, it's, apparently we've got, you know, a lot of uh, I don't want to call it empirical data because it's always experiential, right? But this really shocking data of people <clears throat> who have been pronounced clinically dead and they have these experiences that 
you know, call it heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to, it's a placeholder, but they go to this wonderful place. They, they see deceased relatives and, you know, talk about unconditional love. Uh, so I, I, I'll just stop with that. You know, that's a great example of a paranormal phenomenon that um, is in the bullseye of people's uh, uh, search for transcendence. And I'll just add that, you know, a lot of the way I think about this comes from my day-to-day -day work as a teacher, you know, and again, a lot of my students are culturally Catholic, but basically secular. And I've been really moved in, in particularly with the material of near-death experiences. I've been really moved to listen to how that kind of data affects my students in terms of their, uh, it's not quite faith. It's, it's not that they, you know, emerge from these classes. They haven't returned back to Roman Catholicism, but they know that death is not the end uh, or they, they're, they're, they're pretty sure that death is not the end. And um, to me, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, so I'll just stick with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, near-death experiences is uh, fascinating. I've followed that over the years as well. But what's interesting, even with specific phenomenon, you still have the, the polarization. I've seen skeptics who just discount everything as a naturalistic experience within the brain. Uh, in the final moments of life or, or would-be final moments. And then you have, again, the true believers, uh, usually of a more new age kind of orientation. Sometimes Christians will try and draw upon that, but most of the time for them, it's it's off base and it's demonic experiences. So it's fascinating how the whole set of paranormal phenomena can often result in this polarization. And so do specific examples yes. within itself. So yes, yes, that, that's fascinating. Let, let me throw out one other example of how people are searching or finding transcendence in the paranormal. My, I had a guest, Ted Peters, a theologian out of Berkeley, who does astrotheology. And he noted, even at so-called secular uh, conferences on the possibility of alien life, he saved the program. And there was a presentation on the possibility that this alleged advanced alien life that has survived uh, their own destruction, traveled across the stars to come here to visit us, may result in our salvation here on Earth. So there's an investment even in some interpretations of alien life with a, a savior kind of mentality. So it's just it's fascinating how these people are finding spiritual or even religious connotations in what's going on in the paranormal. Oh, that's fascinating. And if, if I could just throw yeah. it in, John, um, I said I was just going to note how at this point in my research, where I stand vis-a-vis -vis the UFO stuff. And I, uh, I'm increasingly persuaded by the so-called ultra-terrestrial hypothesis mm. that, uh, and I'm thinking now specifically uh, about the work of Jacques Vallée, mm -hmm. who of course, right, uh, well-established scientists who work with J. Allen Hynek and right. on the, et cetera, but that uh, perhaps we are, what we're, what we're dealing with here is uh, better thought of as some kind of entities as opposed to extraterrestrials, uh, entities coming from outside of space and time. If, if that's the case, just taking that hypothesis on base value, that immediately gets into the area. And here's a kind of, you know, uh, gesture to maybe some of the religious conservatives 
what might in the old days have been called demonology or perhaps and or angiology, um, you know, discernment. I, I don't think we're at a point now with this where we can even talk about discernment, but but that would be right again in the bullseye of what could be more religious than angels and demons, if that in fact is what they are. Yeah, Valet's work is fascinating, and he certainly problematizes the uh, what I think he's called the, the nuts and bolts uh, spaceship hypothesis, the ETH, extraterrestrial hypothesis, which is kind of the go-to thing. Well, if UFOs are real, what yes. they mean by real is it must be extraterrestrial visitors. But he points out, he's got these fascinating little charts, the wide variety of, of des depictions of spacecraft, of aliens. So we've either got, if alien visitation is possible, it would probably be very rare given all the dynamics involved, but we've got this cosmopolitan phenomenon going on with its diversity. So if you're going to come up, you know, have the ET hypothesis, you've got to account for the kinds of things that Valet is, is pointing out. So I highly recommend his work. You've recently, you mentioned in a prior email, a book of his that you had read that changed, oh. that was starting to change your mind. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I just finished uh, his book, Trinity, uh, which is basically, it centers around the sighting of two uh, uh, Hispano boys in New Mexico uh, who, when interviewed, are now, you know, obviously or I shouldn't say obviously, but are now fully grown men. Uh, this happened in 1945, oh, wow. 30 miles away from where they detonated the first atomic bomb at White Sands in New Mexico. And um, so Valet thinks this is very important for two reasons. First, that it pushes the date of modern UFO sightings back from, it's usually dated right from Kenneth Arnold's 1947, right. back two years. And, but even more importantly, it links it explicitly with the detonation of these atomic bombs. So there's a kind of, he doesn't really go into that, I, more by way of illusion that we've somehow, you know, upset a balance or attracted the attention or woken up something. Um, so yeah, it's called Trinity. I forget who the co-author is. The co-author is an Italian ufologist who, who conducted extensive um, interviews with um, these two men. And they saw what they saw was they, it was about, I think, 30 days after the detonation of the test bomb. And they, um, they lived on a, on a ranch out in, in rural New Mexico, and they were out in the back country on their, on their horses. And they're both children now, maybe seven or eight or something like this. And I, they saw some smoke, you know, coming up from an arroyo and they, they went over and when the smoke cleared, there was, uh, according to their testimony, uh, there was an egg-shaped craft uh, and these humanoid beings, uh, short, maybe around five feet tall uh, in coveralls. And they were kind of gliding around the, the object. And they were kind of emitting this screeching noise that one of the witnesses described as like, you know, the noise that a rabbit makes when it's, when it's scared. And um, so that's what they saw. And then um, this, is, this is very interesting, I think. You know, we're always talking about who knows what and, and you know, is there a conspiracy? Well, Valet points out that this whole area was actually under the purview of the Atomic Energy Commission, not, not the conventional military. Because So they have their own, I don't know about this, but, uh, but 
apparently they've got their own kind of authority and purview. They came in almost immediately because they their radars picks, picked up on, on an object and they just, I mean, this is before flying saucer was even a word. This was before the extraterrestrial hypothesis was even a paradigm. So they, there was just this thing that shouldn't have been there. And according to these witnesses, the AEC uh, built a road, a paved road into this area of the ranch and eventually sent the semi in with a crane, put this egg-shaped object on the back of a truck. And the, the soldiers who were you know, doing all this grunt work Again, as far as they were concerned, this was just some weird craft, you know. So they'd like take a lunch break and leave this place deserted. So these two little boys went up to the truck and one of them actually went underneath the tarp on the semi and went into this, inside of this thing, this craft. And uh, there was nothing, there was either nothing in it or it had been gutted out by that time. Uh, with the exception of one aluminum kind of lever that, uh, looks suspiciously like an earth manufactured lever. Uh, but anyway, and then it was hauled away. And, but since that time, uh, the AEC or wh whoever now, you know, is, is in charge of that land, they've come in, they've altered the landscape, they put in landfill, um, they've planted poisonous plants um, in that area where the craft was. So anybody with a Geiger counter or what have you is going to get, you know, terrible hives and so forth. So there, it's a fascinating story of whatever it is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's Valet's reason most. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to check it out. I've read a lot of his stuff, but I haven't read that one. So I'll have to seek that out. Um, let's talk about your, your first book, your ethnography. Um, I was recently reminded that I have way too many books because when, in preparation for this interview, I was looking at your bio and I thought, oh, I need to order his ethnography. And I ordered it and it was in transit. And then I was checking my uh, section of my library on the paranormal and there it was. I'm like, oh, that's right. I already ordered it. So I returned it, uh, thankfully, but uh, rather than having, not that I don't want two copies of your work, <laughs> but uh, I didn't think I needed it. Uh, you wrote this ethnography. You're, you're taking this journey across America and looking at certain paranormal areas. What what led you to do that? What kind of experiences did you have along the way? Mm. <clears throat> so, well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my, my, the first prompt, I guess you could say, was being here in upstate and learning that and actually going to this place down the road here called Lilydale, which is kind of like a time capsule of, uh, of the Great Awakening or maybe a little towards the tail end of it when spiritualism mediumship was all the rage in the 19th century. It's a community of mediums about 50 miles southwest of Buffalo, New York. And it was founded in 1879, uh, you know. So I, I, I went there, loved it. I mean, just in terms of its aesthetics, it's real kind of old weird America, you know. And uh, so I thought, well, it would be, I had already done ethnographic work as a graduate student on Latino Latin American religion. I thought, well, how can I do an ethnography, you know, on the paranormal? So initially I was thinking, well, maybe it would be fun to study crop circles, but as a colleague of mine pointed out, by the time I got there, they'd be gone. So I thought, well, that's a good point. So then I finally landed on, um, for lack of a better word, kind of like paranormal gatherings. So Lilydale, 
that's open to the public every summer. People converge. Great. I can interview folks. Um, I ended up with, with Lilydale, uh, the Roswell UFO Festival out in New Mexico. And then as my third uh, selection, I landed on the American Society of Dowsers, just mm. because dowsing always sort of, it never quite makes it onto the map of the paranormal, but it's a fascinating, better known as water witching. Yes. And, uh, you know, goes back to colonial times. And, you know, farmers would use this for the, as a method of allegedly finding water, you know, underground water to dig wells. So anyway, um, so those are my three, uh, my three sites. And uh, in terms of, of, of things that happened to me, uh, I guess I'd have to say the, the things, the, the hot spot for me was, was Lilydale. And I'll just tell you, I had, uh, I don't even know where to begin. I've had so many strange experiences at Lilydale. Uh, just to give you one, uh, one night, um, I had been doing research there and um, I, I said to my wife, I said, you've got to check this place out. You know, it's just really, it's kooky and it's crazy and it's fun. So, so we were there together and one night we were walking along the shores of Lake Casadega because the camp is on the shores of this lake. And truly just in jest, I was in the middle of trying to write this book and, and in jest, I just said, okay, you know, if there's anybody listening, uh, uh, I, I really want some help or something like that on this book, I, just as a joke. So we took a few more steps and my wife looked out at the lake. It's, it's around dusk now. And she said, what is that? Is that a duck? And I looked out at the water and, and there was this swiftly moving object coming towards us. And I said, no, I don't think that's a duck. She said, well, what is it? And we realized, and this is such a strange story, John, but I, I swear my father's grave that this has happened. It was, I won't say it was the size of the Loch Ness Monster, but let's just say it was a, a very, very huge water snake, uh, you know, maybe 10 or 15 feet. I mean, this thing was, that what we thought was a duck was its head. So we were like, you know, kind of freaked out and the thing kind of swam away. And then we walked down a few hundred yards down the lake and there were these, um, these ladies standing on a kind of, on the, on the end of a dock that's there. And they were just staring into the water and we, we called out to them and we said, did you just see that? And they said, my God, they said, yeah, what was that? That was, I've never seen a water snake that big. So now, the, to end the story. So I was telling people who live there, you know, all, all summer long, what had happened. And they said, well, what are you talking about? We've never seen that. And, you know, it was just bizarre. I mean, that, that's just, who knows what that was. Maybe that's just a naturalistic <laughs> phenomenon. I, I, I had one interesting meeting with um, a practitioner of Santeria from Cuba, uh, who was visiting Lilydale with her friend Barbara, a Cuban American from Miami, and I spent a night with them doing a, a Santeria-style seance down at the same dock that I just mentioned. And uh, among other things that happened during that event, um, the Santeria went into a trance and she 
started to describe in very precise detail the um, the scene of, of, of my father's death. He died at home many, many years ago. Uh, and she described the time of day, a, a particular ring that he had on his finger and stuff like that. And it actually, messages from my father, that was kind of a leitmotif at Lilydale every time I go there from not just from the Cuban medium, but from the, you know, the American mediums who were there. So um, other than that, I, I'd have to say that uh, the other weirdest place that I visited was Point Pleasant in West Virginia. Speaking of Jacques Vallée, you know, here's a good 1970s classic, John Kills the Mothman Prophecy, very much in that, mm -hmm. that wheelhouse. And, you know, all I can say, not as an academic, but as a human being, that that, that, that area had a really heavy vibe. And I spent the, the night in this, this old hotel. I don't know if it's been renovated since that time. This is like 2010 or 2009. But I was like one of the few people in this old hotel where you still use the old fashioned keys, you know, to open the door, forget about cards. And people had told me that this place was haunted. I didn't see any ghosts or anything, but I, I slept on top of the covers that night, fully clothed with all the lights on. There was just a vibe to, I, I don't want to say anything untoward about West Virginia as a whole. I think it's a beautiful state, but at least that particular place, ma'am, that there was, I didn't surprise me that people would be seeing cryptoids. <laughs> so, yeah. It sounds like you had some fascinating uh, visits to some great places and had some interesting experiences. You know, sometimes on Facebook, they'll circulate these memes. Uh, if somebody offered you a million dollars, would you spend the night in this you know, house that's on it or this graveyard? And I'm, everybody's like, no way. And I'm like, heck yes, I'm yep. I want to check this out. Uh, so why not right yeah exactly it sounds like you're of a similar mindset there you know when you said you were sitting there over the the lake and you called out is anybody there then you took kind of a, a cryptoid turn i was hoping you were going electronic voice phenomenon that has always fascinated me uh, you've ever done any research or anything with that i personally have not but at lilydale i met this woman from uh, scotland uh donna sinclair who, who's done a lot of that stuff. Um, and she actually played some of the tapes for me. Um, she would go to places like old churches in Scotland and England and, um, you know, and I don't want to sort of say one way or another what I think that is. You know, I don't know enough about audio technology, but certainly some of the things she played for me were um, a little creepy, you know, kind of gruff voices and this kind of thing. Um, I myself haven't done any uh, EVP work or really that, that much extensive research, but, you know, um, I recently actually reread the Mothman prophecies hmm. and I think Kiel, you could say whatever you want about Kiel, but he's a great writer and an interesting thinker. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, let me just say this. I find this sort of um, paradigm of uh, energy, you know, that these things are, are a lot of the paranormal phenomena may be manifestations of energy that, that, that's there all the time. 
but we just don't pick up on because we are limited to a, a very specific perceptual bandwidth, just as human creatures. I mean, we know animals can see infrared light. We know that, or ultraviolet light. We, we know that uh, our perception of reality is um, bound and limited in certain ways. So when you approach it that way, and I guess I'm thinking about EVP, you know, like why couldn't there be, I don't know what to call them, energetic resonances or something like that, that are, are just sort of there as a matter of course, uh, but we don't hear them. And then when we do, we kind of get all up in arms and come up with all these theories, but it's maybe it's just part of what, you know, Kripal would call not the supernatural, but two words, the super natural. Maybe this is a dimension of our cosmos that we're just not tuned into most yeah. of the time. Who knows? There's so many fascinating phenomena out there. I mean, really uh, are. There, I think the name of the book is phone calls from the dead. I don't know if you've seen that. I, I heard of it. I, I did post on my, one of my other blogs, Theo Fantastique on this when that came out. And that's just fascinating. And not only because of the phenomenon itself, but also because uh, I grew up in the 1970s with the Twilight Zone. And there was a great episode of a elderly woman who keeps getting this call in the middle of the night when the when they discover the phone lines are down. And it turns out to be from a deceased uh, boyfriend reaching out posthumously. So, I mean, that's fascinating. Did you have a comment on that? Or? Oh, yes, actually, I'm picking the story. <laughs> and again, this is, you know, if you live in upstate New York, you really don't have to travel very far. This is a colleague of mine, actually, at the college that I teach. And uh, anyway, um, an acquaintance of hers, this is, this is like the pretext to a great horror story. So I, I could just say this, uh, uh, an acquaintance of hers, uh, her father passed away and they, I believe they buried him with his, his cell phone. I think that's the pretext. I think this is the, or if not that, then um, after he was dead, I don't know, you know, he obviously didn't use the cell phone anymore. And, and uh, anyway, his daughter started getting these phone calls from the cell phone and yeah, she'd, she'd pick up the phone. Hello, nothing there. Um, I myself actually, now that I'm talking about this, I myself actually had an experience, um, in, when I was in California, this is years ago and a very, a very dear friend of mine, this, uh, this older woman, uh, she's in her eighties, she passed away. And, um, I was at a, like a retreat center at the time and I, I was grieving and, and, and I think at one point, maybe, I don't know if I prayed or just sort of called her name or something. And there was an old fashioned, you know, on the hook telephone in my room. And at that very moment, the telephone rang. And I remember I, I you know, I hadn't been drinking, you know, I mean, I was, was, and I picked up the phone, hello, and there was nothing on the line. So what do you do with that? It was a meaningful coincidence, right? It was a synchronicity. Um, but I've, but I've heard a lot of stories like that or read a lot of stories like that. And back to this energy thing, you know, yeah, whatever's going on seems to like electricity. <laughs> <laughs> For those who are watching and listening, this is what happens when you get two of the X-Files molders together. And they start swapping experience uh, stories and, and little tidbits of information here. Uh, we'll include a, a link to uh, your book, uh, your ethnography in the program notes, as well as uh, the volume that you and I worked on together. I want to encourage folks Wonderful. to both of them out. 
let's switch yes. gears to the volume that we worked on together. Yes. Um, yes. You reached out to me through, I think, our, our fellow colleague, Joseph Laycock, who is yes. a, a professor of religious studies. He has been willing to, to go there and do some great research and, and scholarly work on the paranormal. In yeah. fact, uh, there was a, a whole issue of uh, the journal that he edits, uh, Nova Religio, devoted yes. to uh, the paranormal. Um, what was it that led you to, to try and put together this anthology of different academic papers exploring facets of the paranormal? Yeah, well, actually what happened, John, was um, I have a good friend uh, who lives out in, in California in Hollywood, West Hollywood, and he basically, he, he writes shows for a living, you know, or he pitches shows for a living. And I actually met him in graduate school. He was an undergraduate at the time, but he was a religious studies major. So he's gone on to, to work in media, but he's very interested in, in subjects that pertain to religion. So he and I had been talking, it was really uh, inspired uh, by him initially. He said, you know, wouldn't it be a great kind of thing to just trace out the paranormal in popular culture? So we've been talking about that for, for a few months, I guess. And it quickly became clear that you know, the kind of book that he was envisioning was not the kind of book that I would write as an academic. So, um, so the next step then was to sort of have that idea, or I guess I should say I've been given that idea really, and um, was looking for someone out in the world there, John, who, who would be crazy enough to, you know, team up with some stranger and talk about the paranormal and uh, popular culture and your name very quickly came up oh, and good. yeah and so uh obviously uh i've reached out to you and uh and that was history in the making so <laughs> that's right there you go that's uh, well again as we said in the beginning of the, the conversation here, one of the things we wanted to try and do with the volume was to send a message to the academic community that the paranormal is something that, that deserves to be taken seriously and, and, and studied. Um, do you, not that our book is gonna, you know, shake up the academic world, but yeah. do you think it's, has your experience been, as you went into fellow academics and received feedback on the book, do you think it's still pretty much uh, considered a fringe phenomenon, especially in something like religious studies? Unfortunately, I'd have to say yes. Um, I think that um, the, I, like I was saying before, you know, I, I, maybe you can help me here. I know there's some sort of sociological term for this, but you know, these, the boundaries, right, of what constitutes academic orthodoxy and academic heresy, um, those boundaries are pretty well drawn out and, um, unless there's something like suddenly the, the military says it's okay to think about UFOs now, um, those boundaries aren't gonna change. Although, you know, immediately on the heels of that last sentence, I did have a colleague in my, in my department at LeMoyne. She's a internationally renowned New Testament scholar. And one of the few people who just was so supportive, uh, genuinely supportive of my work. She just thought it was great. Uh, we have in common a love for David Lynch and Twin Peaks. So that should probably sort of settle that matter. But um, uh, I think it was during our last faculty meeting, um, she exclaimed on Zoom, you know, we were all there together. And she said, you know, 
hey guys, you know, in the next month or two, uh, this idea of disclosure is going to become a reality, you know, in terms of UFO phenomena. And I was, I was trying to be kind of more mild mannered because I already have the stigma, you know, and, uh, but she was very vocal and she said, you know, um, in private, she said, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> You've been writing about this for years and now maybe people will take a look at it, but I guess that's my point. Maybe people will take, um, a closer look at, say, UFOs, because there's been this important shift, culturally speaking. But short of that, I think people are still going to be tiptoeing around this stuff for quite a while. It, yeah, so. it's interesting that you mentioned uh, academic heresy. Uh, what's fascinating to me is having worked in the, the field of new religious movements or, or cult studies for years, and seeing how academics rightly take issue with the way religious communities often write about what they consider to be heresy in pejorative ways. Even so, the so-called secular academic community likewise has its orthodoxy and its concern for heresy. Right. And, and they often have these knee-jerk reactions to keep what doesn't fit within the, the orthodox boxes at bay. So it's yes. fascinating, a, a great dynamic. Um, let, let's end with... Um, some commentary about the, the government UFO report. Um, you and I have both been studying uh, the UFO phenomenon for a number of years. The, there was a much anticipated uh, report and it, it comes out and it, was your, your mind changed or what were your thoughts leading up to the report and, and any thoughts afterwards? Yeah, well, I, 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 I have to say I was pretty surprised, first of all. I mean, it was just such a kind of one, 180 degree turn, right, from what had been going on before. Um, and I guess I have a, a constellation of thoughts about how the government has uh, covered, well, I, I don't want to say covered up, but really made fun of, you know, or debunked UFO sightings. And this goes back to the Robertson report, I think of 1952 or 1953, it was a concerted decision by, I think it was this CIA that, you know, um, this UFO craze could be used by enemies, you know, as part of psychological warfare. So the best thing to do is just to make fun of it. I really think that, um, that that's played a, a role in um, the crisis that we're, we're now in as Americans in terms of, you know, Whose news do we believe? What's fake news? What's real news? Because there, we have this history of disinformation behind us. And I'm not saying that's the only cause, obviously, but I think it doesn't really help um, when you're telling people who are having these profound experiences that they're really not having those experiences. I mean, that's bizarre. Um, so I'm glad they did it. Um, I think probably there will be. Um, like I'm saying, more about sort of the herd mentality. Okay, now it's going to be okay to talk about UFOs, and I think uh, I think what's the mo the most interesting thing to me, and I'm really pleased that that the military said this was they didn't say that these are extraterrestrials. They simply said we don't know what these are, and you know I think as far as I can tell, anybody who's really delved seriously into the par paranormal world, that's usually the conclusion that they come up with. Um, and this goes back to this idea, and it's Kripal's as well, 
that the paranormal is best seen as a solvent. It's what we don't know as opposed to what we can definitely declare. Um, and then um, I was reading an op-ed. Uh, I can't remember the author, but I believe it was the author of American Cosmic, and I'm blanking on her name. But in any case, her point was that there's a, a lot at stake practically right now in terms of how we do narrate the UFO phenomenon, because we could easily say, okay, this is a threat to our national defense, which means then we would have a, a compelling reason to, you know, inflate the military budget. And I, and I forget what the other option was, but her point was that we're, we're living in a time right now where the narrative is kind of up for grabs and that that has very real life implications for, um, for, for government policy. So, so yeah. Yeah, I, I will give the government credit for releasing a report <laughs> saying that something is getting into our military bases next to our military war machines, and we have no idea what it is, uh, you know, that kind of thing, which, which is a very frightening admission for uh, a super, the, the last supposed superpower to make exactly. uh, in that regard. So I'll, I'll give them credit for that. I don't know that it changes the complexion of the UFO debate. Um, but it, it does create kind of a, a wider context, like you said, for, I don't know if plausibility is giving too much, but some possibilities yeah. that are there for, for folks to consider it. And I've seen more and more stuff in my news feed in mainstream media now about the UFO phenomenon. So, so I'll take it, you know, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Definitely. Any other closing thoughts you might have, my friend? This has been uh, a heck of a good time for me. Hopefully it's been a good time for you. Well, no, that's just what I was going to say, John. Like you mentioned in the beginning, this is the first time I think I've actually uh, seen you face to face. And it's just it's just a, a very rare thing, I think. This will be my, my comment. Um, it's rare to find someone like yourself who is both open to this and also critically minded. And I, I think this conversation models, um, you know, this really great third possibility that can exist in between, like you were saying, true believers and 100% agnostic uh, skeptics. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. And I, who knows? Uh, I'm hoping this is well received. Uh, I do get the occasional private inquiries, not public ones, because people are, are embarrassed. Hey, uh, can you come do a private Zoom conversation and talk about this particular topic? So hopefully having this public conversation uh, and the way that we've done it will we'll open some doors. And, and if this phenomenon continues or, or other things come in the news related to, to the work that we've done, I would love to have you come back. It's been awesome. Oh, thank you very much, John. And same here. And I would love that. Thank you. Well, this is the uh, podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead. Again, my uh, guest today has been Daryl Catherine, And you will find links to uh, two of his books in the podcast notes. Uh, one is very affordable. The other one's a little academic and you might want to go to university uh, interlibrary loan, but uh, it's certainly uh, worth checking out. So uh, I want to thank, um, again, my guest and thank uh, the viewers and the listeners until the next episode.